Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. This week we have John Humphreys, former presenter of the Today programme, in conversation with Justin Webb. Hannah produced this event. Hannah, tell us about this. John Humphreys is one of the big beasts of the BBC, the terrier of today, if you will. Absolutely. And he's just stepped down after 32 years presenting the show and he was in conversation with his Today colleague, Justin Webb. He's also just produced his long-awaited memoir, A Day Like Today, which is a brilliant read. And what did they speak about, Hannah? Did they spill any beans? They spilled a lot of beans, Farah. They talked about Humphrey's battles against the BBC bureaucracy and the various heads that were caused to roll during his show. Brilliant. Well, we hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please take a moment to rate and review Intelligence Squared on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe. Just before we go to this week's episode, if you're in London, I wanted to let you know about an event we're doing on the 14th of November. It's our joint event with the New York Times called Intelligent Times. And we have the executive editor of the New York Times, Dean Baquet, in conversation with the historian Simon Sharma on Trump, politics and the future of news. It's going to be an amazing event to have the editor of the New York Times here in London just to speak with us. Do buy your tickets online at intelligencesquared.com and you can use the discount code PODCAST at the checkout. Hannah, Hannah, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Can I just say I know perfectly well why you're all here. There is no bloody index in this book. <laughs> You've all come to try to see whether you're in it. And we will get to every single one of you uh, later on. I discover, um, uh, doing my final reading of it this afternoon, that I am in it on page really? 2,671. Sure. There's only 2,000 pages. A slighting reference to how much I earn or don't earn oh, yeah, compared yeah, with yeah, you, yeah, yeah. which we might come back to later. John, I got up at quarter past three this morning. Mm. You did not. No. Which feels like what? Bliss. Yeah. It doesn't, though, does it? No. Did, you must miss it. Yes. There must be something about it. Yes. 
What aspect? Any more questions? Uh, uh, what aspect do I miss arguing? This is true. This is true. A few days ago, a frog in my garden jumped into the... I found the frog in the sink, in a sink. You know, it's from, you know, the pipe comes down from the roof and the, you know, the wastewater flows out and the sink. And there was a frog in the sink and it couldn't get out. No, because it was... No. So I helped it out. I put my hand in and I scooped it up. And, and as I did so, it started doing what frogs do. And it And I started arguing with it. <laughs> and I thought, no, no, John, that's, that's, you know, it's only been a fortnight. What the hell are you going to be like in a... I, I, I just, yeah, I mean, what else can you do when you get up apart from argue? I mean, do, you, do you listen to it? Which answer do you want, Justin? Now, the honest uh, one, the honest one. I listen say. to the headlines to see if anything important has happened. And I listen to see who you've got on. And on that basis, I decide. And I reckon it's probably about 50-50. But maybe I'll have it on in the background. And when you listen... Do you do what everyone, I imagine, here does? Oh, and, yeah, why the hell isn't he asking that, for God's yes, sake? Yeah. Yes, of yeah. course I do, of course yeah. I do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the number of times I've, I've gone for my phone to text the editor to say, that is funny, you can't possibly... And then the, the finger yeah. is poised over the button and, yeah. and you realise yeah. that actually... And that one's, that's when Nick's on. That, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to comment. Oh, I can, I'm allowed to comment now, aren't I? Nothing is stopping me. I have freedom. Um, so, no, it's not only when Nick's on. Mm. Do you that, have... That was fairly diplomatic, wasn't it? Too, yeah. too diplomatic, people may feel, and we might come back to that. Do you have this kind of sense, though, of, of freedom? Yes. That, w- which has what impact on you, on your, on your life? Not very much at the moment, but I'm working towards it because I've got another book coming out in about six weeks in which I say what I really think. Yeah, it's, it's taken me a little while to adjust. Um, not well. I mean, the honest truth is not very much, because having done the book, I mean, I've said in the book pretty much what I think about things. I mean, it was weird starting the book because I'd, I'd actually signed the contract to to do the book nine years ago, promised to deliver within two years, and then finally got around to writing it, starting to write it about eight or nine months ago. So instead of having seven years in which to write it, I had a few weeks, a few months in which to write it. And the first few sentences I wrote, well, instinctively, I thought, hang on, I wonder what they'll think about that. Because you do, don't you? I mean, however, well, old hands like us, however, I mean, you're that bit older than me, but you, you, you do. You, you, there is just that little bit of your brain, and if you've been with a corporation, as I have, for 50 years, you've all, even though occasionally, quite often, you might defy the bosses, but nonetheless, in the back of your brain, there's that little red warning light that says, should you really be saying that? But and now you things, don't have to do that. But are the things you want to say, I mean, more things that, that, that might seriously not be in the book that you wanted, do you find yourself now having views in a way that you've kind of repressed for... Whatever? Well, it what you, yes, I mean, not having views, I think I've always thought what I think, if you see what I mean, but, but haven't said it. But Brexit is the obvious example, isn't it? I mean, I, towards the end of my time there, uh, well, fact for the past three years I suppose I was given an awfully hard time by many members 
of the um, Twitterati, if that's what they're called, uh, for being a Brexiteer and giving a horribly hard time to Remainers, which was, can I use the word in, this is sort of almost a sacred building, isn't it? But nonetheless, which was bollocks. Um, I mean, I, I did not. And now... No lightning has come. Not, not, so. Yeah, no, I'm just looking up there. There is an old fellow with a long <laughs> yeah. beard, uh, yeah. with a bolt or something. Uh, and, and, and now um, I am able to say I voted Remain. Now, obviously, I, I could... Uh, there you go. Yeah. Um, but, but I couldn't say that. I mean, how did you vote, Justin? Luckily, I'm still on the corporation's dollar, <laughs> and I refused a glass of wine before we started. I noticed. So I'm not foolish enough to say. But let me put this to you on the Remain subject. You told me that quite soon after the, um, uh, after the referendum. Yeah. It's also become obvious when you read the book. You are a Remainer. Yep. You are an atheist. Yep. You are a Republican. I mean, move to Islington, for God's sake. What, you know, what kind of a social conservative are you? Why is it that everyone has got this wrong about you? Um, because you're not, you're not a proper representative of all the things that you sort of claim to be representing, it seems to me. Oh, are you sure about that? I'm pretty sure, we may, we make fairly sweeping judgments about who are Brexiteers and who are Remainers. Too sweeping, ridiculously simplistic judgments. And there are plenty of perfectly thoughtful, perfectly intelligent, perfectly worldly wise people who see no reason why we should not leave the European Union. You write quite a lot in the book about how the BBC didn't see it coming. Yeah. Management didn't see it coming. Reporters didn't see it coming. We didn't get out there enough. No, we didn't. And that, and that is unquestionably your view. There's a more subtle challenge to you that I've certainly heard is that one of the reasons we voted to leave the European Union is that you didn't challenge people properly on the facts of the case. In other words, the arguments that were put on each side weren't suited by your interviewing style. The evidence for that? The evidence, well, the evidence is this. Evidence is this, that... Uh, there, is, there are two styles... Hey, uh, by the way, no, hang, on, hang on a second, hang on a second. Let, no, no, you'll have to shut up for a minute. There are two <laughs> styles of interviewing. One, uh, I think Evan Davis epitomises, and you have a little bit of a go at him in the book, kind of gently, but Evan Davis epitomises this view that when you interview someone, the effort is to try to find what the truth is. When you interview someone... Your effort is to knock them down as much as possible because you, like a good barrister, are trying to see, test the wheels of their case. And the argument is, this is way too long a question, but the, argument is, the argument is that actually Brexit needed the first approach, not the second. Well, there's an argument for that. Um, oh, I, okay. I, right, done. I would, I mean, okay, I've got to stop you there. It's time for the weather. I've, I've, I've actually, I think you've conceded it. I've actually forgotten what the first part of the year was so long. But, um, <laughs> well, I took exception, by the way, to the word truth. We're not trying to seek or find or prove the truth. Are we not? No, 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 we can't What's do that. What's actually happening? No, 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 I, th- I think you're... Con- ah, ah, facts, yeah. But people can take one group of people who believe in a particular ideology or whatever happens to be can take a set of facts, which are indisputably facts, and others can take the same set of indisputable facts and reach entirely different conclusions and tell you that the truth of the matter is X or Y. 
That happens, and has always happened throughout history, and will always happen. Um, and so I'm nervous about the word truth. Whose truth do you want? Do you want Donald Trump's truth? And I use the word in inverted commas, clearly, when we're talking about Donald Trump. Or do you want Boris Johnson's truth? <laughs> or do you want Jeremy Corbyn's truth? They all have different versions of the truth. That's a cop-out. There is something yep, that you is... You spotted it. Well done. There now, is I'll something that is true. I mean, there really is. There are things that are the case about, for instance, trade, about, for instance, the Northern Ireland border. There are things that are factually true about what is possible uh, and what isn't. So the challenge to you is that your style doesn't, doesn't get at them. Northern, Northern Ireland border, good example, perfectly good example. It is the case, and this has puzzled me right from the beginning, it puzzled me uh, to this day, that after Brexit, however it happens, there is bound to be a border between the United Kingdom, as exemplified by the, 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 um, the, uh, the province of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. There has to be a border, otherwise we all know what would happen. Now, the effect that that would have is where you get into difficulty with the truth. Those who are unionists will argue that it would destroy the union. Those who are nationalists would argue that if you do allow the border to be recreated, it is inevitable that there will be, it will destroy the, uh, the Good Friday Agreement, there will be violence, and the whole thing will fall apart, will come apart at the seams. Now, those are two versions of what they would regard as the truth. I don't know which of those is true. I've absolutely no idea. So all you can do, and you were almost right in your laborious question, you, um, all, all, all you can do is try to establish the facts. But then again, whose facts do you want? Do you want Boris Johnson, for instance? Do you believe Boris Johnson when he says that in the case of the Northern Irish border, you, there is uh, an indisputable case to be made for um, operating the border electronically? or eight miles away from where the border happens to be, finding a way of doing it technically that, that isn't in operation at the moment but would work perfectly well, or the view from Brussels, which is that it wouldn't work at all. Now, now what set of facts do you want? All right, you bore me into submission. Uh, <laughs> look, look uh, can we go back to where the book begins and the wellsprings of what it is that, that made you you and made you not only want to go into journalism, but made you have the attitude that you have to authority. And there's a, there's a bit in the book where you go to hospital, you're a young kid, and there are posh doctors. Um, tell us about that and what happened and why that matters. Oh, it, it seems to me that that matters a lot. Well, it, that, that's, it, it was an example um, of, uh, <laughs> of my view, a 15-year-old, 14-year-old view at the time, 14-year-old view that they were against us, that is to say rich people, middle-class people, were um, against us, the poor people. Um, it started not in my, in my hospital bed. Well, I mean, my father was... Um, uh, how can I put this? He was a very strong man who had very strong views, who had absolutely no time for authority. He, he went blind when he was a young man, uh, when he was a kid. Uh, he had got measles and managed to escape from the bedroom where he had been confined because in those days when you had measles you weren't allowed to go out because the sun could destroy your op and he, he, his mother went out shopping my grandmother went out shopping and he, uh, he escaped from the house there was snow on the ground the sun on the snow and he lost his sight that did something to him that did something quite profound to him because of the way he was treated 
in the years that followed that. Eventually, he managed to get a job, um, and in his first week there, he punched the foreman on the nose and lost his job and never worked for anybody again. And much more seriously than that, um, they, uh, my, my small uh, sister, uh, Christine, um, died. She'd been taken ill, not a desperately um, serious illness, and uh, was taken into hospital. My parents weren't allowed to visit her, and... Um, and very soon after she'd been taken to the hospital, she died. Had they been allowed to visit her, which they would have been allowed to do had they been members of the articulate middle class, things were awfully different a few years ago, to what, a few years ago, 70 years ago, um, they might have made the difference. She might have lived because they would have spotted... Blah, 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 blah. Now, um, he never got over that. He hated authority. He was a French polisher who, if he not, and we needed the money, God knows, but if he knocked on the door of a grand house and was told to go to the servant's court, uh, entrance, he would turn around and walk away. That's the sort of bloke he was, and, and I inherited that. He did not, he yeah. was um, a, a, a whole, a, a full-blooded Republican. He, he was a member of a club where the Queen's picture was on the wall, and there was one Friday evening when the club was absolutely full, he refused to sit in the only empty chair that was beneath yeah. the Queen's portrait, and he said so, and they expelled him from the club. I mean, that sort of thing went on all the time. But it's more you inheriting it, isn't it? It, it, it formed you. That formed it, you. It, it's it, so it, obvious it, from sitting... It, it, near it, you for it, 10 it, years, it that's did. And, 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 and the incident that, that, that yeah. you referred to, yeah. I, was, I was in hospital um, I, just for the day, I mean I was a day, I, I'd, um, I had a cyst at the base of my spine, so I was lying on the bed, naked and the, uh, are you sure you want this story, and the um, I wasn't and, going to mention the cyst, and, but anyway. Well, you know, there other, now, otherwise, there's not much point of it. Anyway, the, the consultant arrived, the grand man arrived with his uh, little coterie of um, of student doctors, all of them, obviously, posh, young, white males. And, uh, and he ignored me, totally ignored me, because I didn't so much as say hello or whatever, didn't bother with my name or anything. He just, they, they stood around and he pointed at me, pointed at the, the, the sister and said, yeah, no real problem here, this young man simply um, doesn't bath enough, and moved on. And, um, and what I wanted to do was, well, A, punch him on the nose, and, and, and B, say, actually, you know what, um, I've got other things wrong with me as well, which are partly a result of the kind of way you live when you're poor. We didn't have an indoor toilet, you know, so in any way, look, that, but, but it affects you. It, aff- yeah. it, aff- it yeah. affects you. It affected me that- anyway, and maybe it's John. And, and I'm not, I am a different person from my then, Justin, as you will have spotted. No, but, but you are still punching that doctor on the nose, metaphorically, metaphorically. it seems to me, from sitting next Except to you for ten years. Except that in fairness, they don't exist like that, I think. Anybody well, anyone who looks or seems to you like that doctor, and perhaps a minister of any party, anyone who is in charge... In authority. Anyone who's in authority. Anyone who's in cultural authority. This is one of the things that strikes me. Let me ask you this as a question. When you look at people who are in charge... There's a different group in charge now, aren't there, from yes. those days? Yes, yes. You don't like them anymore, do you? Well, it's not a question of liking them. We're journalists, and our sacred duty, God forbid, pompous phrase, but what we have to do, and it's only we who can do it, at least only we can do it. We've got people out in the streets a few yards away from here doing it for themselves, and that's fine, but we have access to power. We are able to ask you know, the old phrase, we are able to hold power to account. That is our job. And you can only do that, it seems to me, if you start from the basis not 
as Paxman would have it, although he was quoting somebody else, it wasn't his original quote, but as Paxman would have it, you know, you assume that every answer the politician gives you, he's lying to you. Why is this lying bastard lying to me? That, that's, that's the sort of Paxman ideology. I don't sign up to that, but I, I, and I don't use the word cynical either. I use the word skeptical. We have to be skeptical of everything, mm. pretty much everything a politician tells us. But Otherwise, you, what are we for? With you, though, it comes from inside you, that skepticism. That's my point. I think it does. And I you think as you well. are. I mean, well, I'm not so sure because I don't actually think I know anyone else at the BBC who has known that poverty that you described or lives viscerally. And that's the difference, isn't it? Viscerally, with that sense of, of disliking. Authority. I don't like the word dislike, really. Um, because it does depend on the individual, doesn't it? And you can't dislike a class. And after all, I'm a, you know, I'm a middle class, for God's sake. I've earned a lot of money, as you subtly pointed out. And, um, and, and, and I, have, uh, I've, I've, you know, I have a nice house. And um, yes, I am, I, am, yeah. I am one of them now, aren't I? So, uh, and I, and, and so, listen, Justin, you're a good mate, yeah. you know, but you're a posh git. You went to private school, yeah. you know. I mean, <laughs> Right, let's get to, 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 to brass tacks. You rang me, I think, a year or so ago, one morning, and you said, oh, bloody hell, mate, I'm in uh, trouble, you said. There's a tape. Oh, uh, it's me and John Sopel, you said. And I, my instant thought was, oh, my God, I don't want to see that. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> Actually, it turned, <laughs> it turned out to be an audio tape, uh, thank, yeah. thank the Lord. Yeah. Uh, it's funny the way your yeah. mind works, isn't yeah. it, Justin? <laughs> Tell us about it. Tell us about it. I went in at four o'clock in the morning that um, Carrie Gracie had written a letter to the BBC um, accusing them, justly, of uh, badly misserving her, uh, actually breaking the law because they were paying her far less than they were paying uh, males doing much the same job, even though, this is the important bit, even though they had assured her that they weren't. I mean, that was the essence of the complaint. It was absolutely, absolutely rock-solid complaint. It was slightly weird, to say the least, that she was continuing to present the programme that morning because it was a huge story, obviously, and neither she nor I was able to talk about it because that was the ruling. And we, you know, she wasn't allowed because she's not allowed to use the table and so and so. I wasn't allowed because she wouldn't ask. The... So it was, it was a very, very, very strange Saturday. And most bosses did not want that to happen. But a couple of very senior bosses said, yeah, she's got to continue to do So she was... You know, um, and, and when I went in, the first thing I had to do, having had a very quick word with, with Carrie, um, was to do what we call a pre-rec, a pre-recorded interview with your old mate John, well, our old mate John Sopel. Um, he was in Washington, obviously, I was in London, at four o'clock in the morning, strictly private little chat, as we always have before the end, that we take the piss out of each other, as you know, I've done it with you many times, um, and, uh, it, it did, and I made some daft remark, I mean, completely, just a bit of mickey-taking banter, I think we call it nowadays, don't we? Saying, ah, oh, you earn that much more, you don't earn as much as you, blah, 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 blah. And on it went for about 40 <laughs> seconds, and we took the mickey out of each other, and that became converted by a certain group of people into me um, deriding Carrie Gracie. Just insane, the whole thing went absolutely bonkers. They played the tape on the PM programme. Oh, yes, they did. 
But, but some days did later... Did they tell you before? They did not. So you, heard, you hear the tape going uh, out? No, I didn't hear the tape. I heard Eddie right. announcing Excuse. that um, this was going to happen, that, that um, this had happened, and then reading in... in it, it really was as, as though he w- were reading the announcement made by the Prime Minister on the outbreak of war or something. <laughs> very, very solemnly, what I said, what she said, what I said, in those tones that you know, Eddie reserved for the most... A nice, soft and, Scottish accent. Yeah, but, but with Believable. Profound, but with profound regret at the same time. Profound you know, regret. that such an awful yes. thing could have happened. Yes. Now, yeah. you know and I know, we're journalists, that if you're going to report a story, a controversial story like that, the very first thing you do is you call the person at the heart of the story, in this case, me. And you say, do you want to come on and defend yourself? Had they? Uh, no. We shared the same room. We said it's the same newsroom. Um, they could have just popped across, walked 20 yards. They could have picked up the phone. Did you ever discover they, why they didn't? Yes, I do know why they didn't. Because Eddie was determined to do it that way. And when Eddie was editing the programme, he got what he wanted. And he wasn't formally the editor, of course. He was not formally the editor, but you'd never guess it. Because I rang in, as soon as I heard that, I rang in, spoke to the editor, and said, I want a right to reply. Because Eddie, at no point, this, the whole thing about it is that at no point <coughs> did Eddie suggest I had been joking yeah. with Justin. Right. Uh, with, with Justin, you're Justin, aren't you? The other Steady. one. Steady. Yeah, I was can, not involved you, you, in this. You can't tell them apart. <laughs> with, uh, with, with, with John. Um, at no point, no, no suggestion that it, from him that it might have been a joke. Right. Um, and so I felt that I, I should at yeah. least be allowed to say, and it was a joke, silly, stupid, but nonetheless, you know, two old mates, and we are old mates, we're old friends, we've been taking the mickey out of each other for 30 years. Um, but at no point did they do that. And then <coughs> I, rang, I rang the programme, said I want to speak to the editor, spoke to the editor of the programme, spoke to the editor of the programme and said... Um, in fairly fruity language, it must be said, I want the right to reply, as it were. And he said, I'll call you back in 10 minutes. He didn't call me back didn't in 10 minutes. So I rang again, and this time was just a teeny weeny bit more cross. And he said, I'm not allowed to let you come on the programme. He's the editor. Now, there's only one person who could have stopped him doing that, and it wasn't one of the big bosses, because yeah. even the big bosses didn't know what they were doing. Mm. Okay. Uh, anyway. The substance, though, of it is that you were paid an awful lot more than uh, particularly the women, but actually the other well, you people as well, as well and, oh. and me as well. Uh, so there was some justice in it, yes. <laughs> yeah, go on. Was that the result of a, an understanding of your worth that was fundamentally yes, that'll do. Yep. corrupt? Because you all arranged in those days, all of you who were the great stars, arranged your salaries with managers who were also overpaying themselves, I put it to you, and actually there was something pretty sickening about it. No, I don't agree with that at all. Um, I'd been, like you, in fact I had your job in North America for, for six years and was paid the usual salary in those days, I don't know, it was about 40,000 quid or whatever it was, um, came back to Britain was asked to do the nine o'clock news, was told by management that I'd be idiotic not to go freelance. If I didn't go freelance, I'd be very silly because I was on the staff, of course, as foreign correspondent. Um, And they said, you can double your salary if you go freelance, at least. So I did. Um, And I doubled my salary. 
and then they asked me to stay program that they had no. And one thing or the other, um, I wrote a column for the Sunday Times, for which I was paid quite a lot of money, and um, then was stopped from doing that and was compensated for doing it. Do you know, I never, ever went to management and said, I want more money. Yeah, but that's the extraordinary thing, actually, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing that I wonder about. And I, th- I think a lot of people wonder about. I was always what stunned at how much I was earning. Was, what were they thinking when they, ca- they paid you, year after year, more and more money? Uh, well, it wasn't, yeah. I mean, but, 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 slightly overdoing it. I mean, I was paying, earning a lot more than you. That is certainly true. But I was also doing Mastermind, and that was paid, you know, completely separate. Um, and, uh, and another reason why I ha- had been paid more earlier was because I was also doing a programme called On the Record, the telly, which I did for a long time. And that kind of... Clung out. So I was working six days a week, and, uh, and you know what it's like being a foreign correspondent. Mm. I was away from home three or four months at a time. I reckoned... And this is... Well, not false money. I mean, I, I, I reckon that, that I'd probably earned a decent whack. And if I'm to be entirely honest, I reckoned I was worth more than somebody who'd come to presenting from a, a somewhat easier life than I'd had, with a bit less experience than I'd had. I'd probably never been shot at, although that doesn't mean anything, I know. But nonetheless, it wasn't an easy life yeah. being a foreign So it's reasonable for some BBC presenters to be paid a lot more than others. Of course it is. Yeah. Of course it is. I mean, that, that, that's the thing that I think now the BBC is, is now struggling with, is, is being able to say. And if some of those are men and some of them are women, it can be there very difficult and embarrassing. To be clear about this, it is absolutely 100% unjustifiable for men to be paid more than women. Full stop. But then you have to say in the next sentence, however, if the man in question is the Director General of the BBC, naturally he should be paid more than somebody who is the Director General's yeah. secretary, for instance. Yeah. Incidentally, on that topic, on that topic, since we're on the men-women thing, I think, and I'm allowed to say so now, formally, it is outrageous that there's never been a woman Director General of the BBC. A hundred years, and no woman. So, I, I have absolutely, I have absolutely no problem at all. I mean, of course, women should be paid the same as men. Of course, they should. But if somebody is doing a more important job or is seen as, presumably, Gary Lineker was seen to be attracting Wagner. I mean, Gary Lineker, 1.75 million. Well, all right. Mm -hmm. But, you know. You know these Uh, sums, don't you, John? You've got them at your fingertips. Oh, yeah. Uh, Let let me, we're we're slightly running out of time. I want to get to what what we in the BBC should be able to say. And as you hinted earlier on, there is this massive issue at the moment with, I don't know if you know, there's a thing called breakfast television. I've heard of it's it. A, yeah, yeah. It hasn't caught on. But, you know, uh, uh, among some, uh, it, is, it <coughs> is a thing. Um, uh, and Naga Bunchetti oh, said Naga Bunchetti, what she said uh, about Donald Trump and about racism. And the BBC, it is fair to say, and I think I can say this as a BBC person, got itself into a considerable Mess. You made, what, they, what you're trying to say, can I abbreviate a bit? They made a total mess of it. A shambles. What should they have done? Horlicks. What should they have what done? They sh- what they should have done was pretty much, actually, I think, what David Jordan did. You know, David, David Jordan being the, the controller of editorial policy. Exactly. His initial response. His was, initial response was to say, as I understand it, and I wasn't actually here at the time, but, but uh, as I understand it, um, his initial reaction was to say, Nothing wrong, but no reason why Naga shouldn't have said, as a woman of colour, I've 
suffered in this way and that way and the other way. Her own personal experience, she's entitled to say that. What her co-presenter, Dan, shouldn't have done was to then ask her the question for her views on Donald Trump's motives in saying what he had said. And I think that's right. Presenters, it's what I said earlier, it's going back to what I said earlier, presenters are not allowed to express views on controversial political topics. I mean, So where the BBC eventually got to was the wrong place, was the wrong place yes. in your view. Yes, yes. They, I think they were and that so, was Tony Hall that overruled. Well, they, the thing is, they were so... I've made this point in the book, as you know. Um, the BBC has been historically and remains, I think, historically afraid of certain pressure groups, whatever they may be at the time. I mean, back in the late 80s mid, and, and, and into the 90s, uh, immigration was a huge issue. The BBC was <coughs> excuse me, terrified of being seen as anti-immigration in any sense whatsoever, so they went in the opposite direction. They were terrified of being seen to be anti-Brexit, um, and they went in the other direction. We regarded people, just, this not specific individuals, but there was a sense that Anybody who, who preached the Brexit cause, though we didn't even have the word Brexit in those days, did we? anybody who said it was a good idea for Britain to leave the European or the European Union was bomb, bomb um, they were regarded as a bit loony. They weren't regarded as serious people. That was the mindset in the BBC. And throughout... Yeah, we do so it. in this case, who are they frightened of? Who's bullied them? Oh, oh obviously, um, racial allegations. Allegations that they're in any way, shape or form racist. But, See, but they weren't being, it seems to me. They saying, weren't being. What supporters of, of, of Nanga Bunchetti say and what, what opponents of the BBC's initial decision say is, hang on a second, why is she being prevented from saying what she wants to say and bringing herself to it? When we know perfectly well what John Humphreys thinks about media studies and... Uh, I would uh, respectfully uh, suggest, organic Mr. farming. That racism and, and media and studies are in slightly well, different categories. No, but, but they um, do know what you think. Well, that's, that, that's the argument. I'm putting it to you. They, they say, why the hell shouldn't she be able to say what she says about Trump? Because we know what people like I, John I think say. the serious answer to that fairly daft question is that uh, <laughs> <laughs> media studies is a matter of monumental unimportance for most people. <laughs> Uh, sorry, um, but it is. Um, and soil, we talked about more views on farming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think we could all agree that healthy soil is a good thing and not highly controversial, couldn't we, really? I mean, I happen to think it's one of the most important things that, that uh, we have. Obviously, global warming is up there at the top, and the, so the health of our soil is a massively, massively, massively important. So I don't think that's too controversial. Really? But I think... To call the president of the United States, not that she did this, but she was, she was being invited to suggest that the president of the United States was a racist. That is a very broad view from my ground. I slightly exaggerate, but, but nonetheless, that was, the, that was the direction in which it was going. I think that's wrong. When we get to that stage, and, and you can't, there are some things like racism, like immigration, uh, that, that are beyond. So, so how serious an error, if it is an error as you think it is, how serious an error has the BBC made? How, how, what, what potentially will come of it, do you think? I think the answer to that is not very much, to be honest. I mean, I think we're through it. You know, the old Alistair Campbell line, which was that um, for, the, for the story to become a, a catastrophe for the party or the government or whoever it is, for the story to become a really, really, really damn, it's got to run on the front pages. I think he used to say for 11 days or it might have been nine, I can't remember. But, you know, that was the kind of length 
span, the length of a span. And this hasn't passed that test, mm. I think. Well, I don't know. You may all think... Yeah, well, uh, people can but, bring, it, bring it up. And then, yeah, and then yeah, yeah. Oh, well, we've got, we've got just a few more minutes before I throw it open to people. Who have you not interviewed who you wanted to? Oh, that's easy. That's easy. You must have. I certainly have wanted to sit there on Monday morning and say, and with me this morning is Her Majesty the Queen. <laughs> I mean, you do, don't you? You, you, you just partly... I notice she's not in a radio car. She's part, come in in she's, this fantasy. She's come. That, Let's have the full fantasy, guys. That, that follows. She do, yeah. do, does, doesn't have to wear a crown, though. Well, okay. no. But you're just, just... I mean, it is every hack's dream, isn't it? Apart from the fact that she is unique. She has met, probably met more powerful people in her life than anybody else on the planet and would have views that are really seriously worth it. And, I mean, and there's the gossip, isn't there? You know, I mean, is Andrew really that? You know what I mean. You, uh, so, 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 the, so there's that. Um, anyway, anyway. Um, Hang on, what's the first question? I'm assuming that's not the first question. What's the first question? I, to the Queen. She's well, there, yeah, it's but, ten but, past eight, you had but, the news bulletin, there's a few security but, people around. Yeah, but, but typically, you see, typically you're trying to frame the interview. Let me say what, if I may, Mr. Moore, what I want to say, and, and that is to say that I very nearly got that interview. Mm. How close? How close? Well, I had an invitation, a message on my answer phone, um, very fruity voice, saying, Her Majesty's commanded me to invite you to one of her private lunches. Me. So I went, obviously, and I, I, I do remember walking through Buck House with the, the rather tall and elegant uh, flunky who'd been sent to welcome me, to greet me, to escort me to the, and, and saying to him, I was slightly nervous, I was saying, I didn't realise that people like me got invited to these sort of things, and he looked down at me, and he said, no, sir, neither did I. <laughs> <laughs> it was, didn't, 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 didn't do a great deal for my confidence. Anyway, we have the lunch. We have the lunch. After lunch, and we are sitting in the, standing in the, this little anteroom where she likes to take her coffee and feed biscuits to those horrible little dogs. Anyway, and I said to her, I said, um, lovely lunch, thank you very much indeed. Um, do you think we might be able to do an interview with you at some point? Uh, you know, give and she looked at me and she said, no. <laughs> and there was... And, 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 and I, you know, then she stopped. So I thought, oh, well, here's, you know, I can build on this and make a, you know. So I delivered my prepared speech and said, um, well, now, let's just sort of think about the various ways in which it, it, it could be, you know, we, we could do this and with that. We, uh, um, and she listened very patiently, didn't interrupt me at all. And she looked back up at me. I, I quote verbatim, looked back up at me and said, no. <laughs> what? What's more, Mr. Humphreys, if one were ever to do such a thing, it would certainly not be with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's why she is where she is and you are where you are, I, I, I suspect. Right, let's throw it open to anyone who wants to ask uh, anything. And, and we've got people who are going to come among you, as they say, in these semi-ecclesiastical uh, circumstances. They're going to come among you with um, uh, microphones and numbers as well. Well, let's do it by numbers. So we've got someone down here who's who's waving and is number one. Uh, Go. Well, firstly, thank you very much, both of you. It was entertaining. My question is about the Iraq war. I deployed there twice, served uh, two campaigns, twice during the campaigns out there. I've never really understood the reasons as to why we went to war there. Um, I've studied it since. I've had a bit of a privileged insight. 
Uh, my conclusion is that Blair knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, Bush lashed out against terrorism and commenced a global war on terror. The British public was conned. And most importantly, Mr Humphreys, Andrew Gilligan was probably right. Okay. Would yeah, you... I would agree with pretty much everything you said. We went to war because Tony Blair had promised George Bush we would go to war. We went on the spurious uh, basis that they had weapons, Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, which he could unleash in 40 minutes, which was complete balderdash. Um, sometime after the end of the war, only a few weeks after the end of the war, I got invited um, by <laughs> an unknown figure. They do it rather stupidly. They, you, you get a call from a, a rather fruity boy saying, if, if uh, we were to invite you to have lunch with a certain figure uh, whose name I'm not allowed to disclose, would you accept? And you say, don't be silly, you've got to tell me who it is. Anyway, the, the figure turned out to be the director of MI5, Sir Richard Dearlove. And, uh, and this, as I say, was shortly after the war, uh, by which time, as you know, um, no weapons of mass destruction had been found. And I asked Dearlove over this lunch, I, I said dinner, I meant lunch, over this lunch, um, whether it was true in his view, bearing in mind that he'd been briefing Blair pretty much every morning uh, of his life for the last several months on the situation in Iraq, whether it was indeed true that Iraq posed a real threat to this country. And he, he said, and, and being a frightfully posh person, it's not that I'm hung up on poshness, you understand? But, but, but a frightfully well-educated You decide. Person, or a frightfully well-educated He said, on, on any Cartesian analysis, it is our view that you, uh, Iraq would not feature in the top. And, and then he said to me, and how would you, members of the media, this is obviously why I'd been invited to this lunch, uh, private lunch. How would you members of the media react if we would say to you that, of course, there were weapons of mass destruction. However, when Saddam realized that he was going to be defeated, he issued an order that those weapons of mass destruction should be destroyed. So therefore, we were not able to find them. How would you react to that? And I said, well, you mean after we picked ourselves up the floor because we were laughing so much? And he said, yes, I rather thought you might say that. And that's the truth of it. That's the truth of it. It was, it was an insane decision by any standards. And well done you for doing what you did and for pursuing it the way you have. And in the way, though, that the BBC pursued it... <laughs> and we all know the outcome of that pursuit and the crisis that it engendered in the BBC. In, in the long run, who won that? I don't think anybody won it because the residual distrust, there was already distrust, of course, between Blair's government, Alistair Campbell and us in particular. Campbell loathed us, as you know. Um, I don't think anybody won that because in the end people have to make up their minds. And you've got one, I remember doing interviews the morning of the Gilligan, I, it, was, it was I who did that interview with Andrew Gilligan, you may remember it, 14 minutes past six on that particular morning. Um, and... I don't know what the audience makes of it when you're getting totally diametric claims being made. How, how can the audience be expected? I think, I think, and perhaps I'm wrong about this, I don't think people got a clear understanding, um, bearing in mind that we'd, we'd already had one so-called inquiry into the war, I don't think people got a clear understanding of what had happened and why until the Chilcot uh, report yeah. was published so the initial many, report many years that, later. That snapped the BBC around. Discredited immediately. Discredited immediately. As the Independent put it, and, and indeed the Daily Mail put it the following morning, big headlines, whitewash. 
And that's what And you still believe that today? Oh, totally. Yeah. Uh, number two, is there someone you're with? Yes. Here we go. Thank you. Um, I'd like to take up the question of the impartiality rule. What we've just been talking about underlines uh, the importance of it. A couple of things. First of all, John, you mentioned earlier on that you used to write for the Sunday Times that were asked to stop. Justin, you continue to write for the Times. What basically, as BBC journalists required to be impartial on air, what... Uh, ground rules are there when you're actually in print. And allied to that, um, LBC permit their presenters uh, to sound their own opinions. Um, do you have an advantage over them, or is it the other way round? Great question. It is, a, it is a very good question. Um, it's changed a wee bit over the years. I was allowed to write a column so long as, and it was the main column, so it, it got a, you know, a big chunk of space in a very prominent place in, in the newspaper, but I was allowed to do it uh, on the basis that I did not offer any opinion at all on British politics. It was a bit hazy as to what I could say about the rest of the world, bearing in mind that I'd been a foreign correspondent and had been expressing opinion about apartheid in South Africa, for instance, where the, the, the government of the day, the apartheid government, tried to get me recalled. But the general rule was not as rigid as it subsequently became, because after Iraq, as, as we both know, the rules were tightened. Uh, I was stopped from writing a column completely, but following the inquiry, um, I, I was stopped from writing, so everybody was stopped from writing for the newspapers completely. It was just a blanket ban. Now it's eased to the extent that um, we are able to write some stuff. We have to run it past the, um, you know, the, 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 one of the senior editorial figures. But as for doing what LBC do and allowing their presenters to do what are sometimes violently uh, opinionated uh, columns on air, as it were, express their opinions unreservedly, I think that would destroy the BBC. I don't know. It would be absolutely, in my view, absolutely unacceptable. We don't have a perfect system, but it's, it, we, we've got presenters like him and me have to be, or as I was, have to be seen to be, to the extent that it's humanly possible, have to be seen to be impartial. Otherwise, the BBC cannot be trusted. But and the BBC have... has only one currency, and that's trust. Number four. Come in, number four. Here we go. Hello. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, balance, which is obviously slightly different to the question of impartiality, mm. and particularly around editorial decisions uh, and balance over controversial topics, especially political ones. I'd be really interested to hear what you think about whether the BBC always gets balance right. Um, what do you mean by balance? Sorry to interrogate you, but what, when you talk about balance, what do you mean by balance? Because it, it is it's quite a complicated concept in a way. Yeah, I, I agree. I think so. There are two types of balance that I'm interested in hearing your views on. One is about um, the balance between political parties during electoral campaigns and where you sit in the polls versus your priority in terms of being put on air yeah. and then secondarily on issues where there are is an asymmetric view say climate change and and or racism which is not an opinion it's a it's a fact mm -hmm. um but the need to present a balance of two arguments for the purposes of of radio 
you might have somebody who supports a racist view and doesn't support a racist view, and that that is a, not a reflection of the true balance of opinion. Right, in... yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I, I take a point. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's perfectly straightforward, and it has happened to me. I've had somebody on the, 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 uh, the Today programme um, who was allegedly um, an influential figure in his community um, who started spouting racist stuff to me, uh, as part of the Tempar State sequence, and I shut him up and we got rid of him. People are not allowed to use the BBC, above all BBC news programmes, and sometimes it happens in comedy, and maybe sometimes in live exchanges it's impossible. To, but as far as the BBC news programmes are concerned, people are not allowed to use BBC news programmes as a platform for racist views. Full stop. No, no, no qualification there at all. As far as something like global warming is concerned, we know as a matter of fact now that global warming threatens the future of this planet. I don't think, well, I don't know, maybe lots of you would disagree with that. That is my informed view, and, and mercifully, it's the view... But should people who disagree with it be on? Well, <laughs> not... Given it's, it's, it's an immensely difficult one. Um, it, would ha it would have to depend a bit, I think. If, look, let's assume, and this is such an unlikely scenario that it sort of is ducking your question in a way, but let's assume that the most senior scientists... Let's, let's take a, a, a really very silly example. Let's assume that the bloke who was uh, awarded today or yesterday, yesterday I think, um, the, um, the Nobel Prize for his part in physics, science, Nobel Prize for science. Um, and he, with his credentials, professor of blah, 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 and winner of the Nobel Prize, said, I've got grave concerns as to the veracity of global warming. You would have to report those views. Of course you would. But if a politician or a former camp or a, a sympathizer of the oil companies or whatever expressed those views, no, I don't think they're entitled. Because... The overwhelming weight of evidence, the overwhelming weight of evidence is now, again, it wasn't. If, you, if you'd asked me this question 10 years ago, I'd have said, mm, well, there are an awful lot of people who would question, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's no longer the case. And, so and, you wouldn't have on climate sceptics at all? Um, I probably wouldn't. I mean, you, you, you'd have to... You'd have to construct. I, I can't. What, what, what scenario can you imagine in which we should have? Well, we did it quite on? recently. We had Al Gore on, uh, and later in the program, oh, we had Nigel you Lawson. Nigel Lawson. I interviewed him, <clears throat> and I, I failed to correct something he said that wasn't true. And we oh, we, got we, we, that, we got a, a, yeah. a real going over for it. And and but what a lot of people objected to actually, and I, I think this goes to, to what you're asking is what, why do we have him on at all? Um, uh, and, and you're saying in those circumstances we shouldn't? No, I think probably not. What about gay rights? Um, we have enormous pressure from some social conservatives who say we are being airbrushed out of modern life. If you sincerely believe that homosexuality is a sin, should you be allowed to express that on air on the Today programme or not? Yes, I believe you should. Why do you have a difference between that and climate change? Because one is a provable scientific fact. Climate change is a provable scientific fact. 
and 95%, whatever it is, how do you get to these figures, 95, 99 maybe percent of the world's climate scientists uh, agree. And that's good but enough on, for me, and it therefore should be, I think, good enough for our But audience. there is no real but, question, hang and, on a second, there's no real question that people are born gay, is right. there? I mean, well, it's, it's a thing, and what uh, gay people say is... No, 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 uh, it's, yeah, but it's that's not what actually, you... scientifically, the case, live with it, and you may not have people, and there are people inside oh, the BBC on, who but, believe but, 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 Hang on, let me, let me put, frame the question. Who, yeah. who, who believe really strongly that it is no longer acceptable for other people to come on and say, actually, and question them and question them as people and question who they are. The difference is between doubting facts, scientific, provable scientific facts, and having a belief. So if, and this is slightly changing the ground a little bit, but if, for instance, you have a bloke with a sandwich board um, on the street saying the end of the world is nigh, and if you've got another bloke with, you'll say fine, you know, whatever. Um, and, and you've got another bloke saying um, all homosexuals should be locked up. That is completely unacceptable, obviously. That is not allowed. If you have somebody who, as a matter of deep, profound belief, feels that we, have, we should not be allowing exactly the same rights is the wrong word and I'm trying I'm struggling a bit with with the word if if somebody if you are a a Christian with serious beliefs who genuinely feels that Jesus would have been a the, the Christian God did not want people of the same sex to get married which a lot do they are allowed to express that view. They should be. They are. I mean, there's no question about. It. They are allowed. The law doesn't stop it. Yeah, and they're on that. And, they, and, and but you and, want them to and, be allowed. And, to, and they, to are, the they are allowed to express it. What we yeah. should not be doing, in my view, and it's kind of the other side of the case, yeah. the coin in a way. We we appointed <clears throat> an LGBT correspondent some while ago, um, who, after his appointment, um, made a little film for the BBC for the uh, website, BBC website in which he said um, that he regarded himself, I'm truncating it obviously, as a mouthpiece for the gay community. My view is that he shouldn't be. Uh, we, don't have, we don't have mouthpieces for any other community, do we? And I'm deep, deeply, deeply uneasy about that. That's slightly different, though, from this yeah, balance yeah, issue is. that the, the lady at the, yeah. at the top... And I, and I think, you know, from John's answers and... and these are discussions that the BBC, of course, has, yeah. and they change over time. But, they, is, is but, the but, honest but just truth, and that's because belief, the, the, the big difference is, is between belief, well, three things, right? Racism, no place. It's against the law, apart from anything else. And I think every, I would like to think every civilized person in the land regards it as being a Discriminating against gay people is against the law. Yes. And, 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 and we can't do that. We absolutely can't do that. But you might have. But you're you, still going to have someone on who says, "I think we should." Well, <laughs> you'll still have people on who believe that their religion tells them that. Yeah, but then, but if, if they came on and, and said, you know, gay people shouldn't be allowed to be teachers, then you'd yeah, run them out of town on a rail. Right. But there is uh, a difference, I think, between a, a genuinely held religious belief and being allowed to okay. express it. And uh, we went to four before we went to three, which is all wrong, but anyway, uh, yeah, here we go. How long do you have to prepare for an interview, and 
Um, has there ever been a time when you thought I haven't a clue what you are? <laughs> oh. Oh, very yes. good one. Very good one. Oh, yes, mm-hmm. yes, a very good question, yes. Well, the one classic one, I mean, the answer to the first bit of the question, how long do you have to prepare? Sometimes no time at all. I mean, quite literally no time at all. I remember on one occasion when the, the stu- everything was crashing in the studio. I mean, literally falling apart. The, the radio cars weren't turning up. The machines were breaking. The whole, and we were down, it was about 20 to 9, so we had 20 minutes of airtime left to fill and nothing to fill it with. And we were all panicking like mad. The last tape was finally running out, so in about 30 seconds, nothing to put on the air. And then somebody came in, the, the, the studio producer came into my ear and said... We've got the leader of the Indian opposition on the line. <laughs> and and, 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 and what, what I wanted to say was, yes, and why? And who is he? And, and that was it. Because then I was live on air with the leader of the Indian opposition. And, and I, did, I did what... I'm, I'm actually quite proud of this. Because um, leaders of opposition have one thing in common, they all want to drop loads of dirt on the leader of the government, because that's why they're the leader, and so on. So I took a chance, and I said, it uh, seems like a pretty serious state of affairs in Yoka. And, <laughs> and then he said, well, you see this, and then we were away. So that was away. Let's do another one. There, oh, right but, but I didn't, right sorry, forgive me. I didn't answer your question. Yeah. The answer is most of the time, yeah. if it's a seriously, if it's an interview with the Prime Minister, you usually get, um, you'll, you'll know about it ahead of time, so you'll have maybe a few hours the day before to prepare, or, uh, usually, if it's somebody uh, as senior as that. Maybe if it's Charles Charles, maybe you'll know, but not necessarily. As often as not, you will have virtually no time to bed. And, and the other problem is that if you go to bed, as you do, well, in my case anyway, I used to go to bed at half past eight, get up at half past three, um, you're not going to be able to be informed about what's happened in Parliament over the last whatever it is, and so on and so on. So there'll be a huge amount you don't know. And, and often you are not prepared. You haven't been prepared. Not because we like to live dangerously, but just, it just doesn't work like that on a, on a programme like today. Different if you're doing World at One, for obvious reasons, but on today, you're, you're often pretty much flying blind. Someone right at the very top there, next to number four, and then we'll come down this side as well, yeah. Good evening, Mr Humphreys. My question is, um, if you were able to give the controller of Radio 4 some advice to in guarantee its future in a world of increasing... Um, media streams with podcasts and Netflix and another channel every week, what would those words of wisdom be? God, I wish I had some. Do you know what I think they'd be? And you'll be very disappointed with this answer. Don't worry too much about what they're doing on social media, for instance, or indeed what any, anybody else is doing. Radio 4 exists and prospers And I know what you're going to say, young people aren't switching on, and that is a danger. But Radio 4 exists to be an intelligent voice appealing to a certain group of people. And that is always going to be the case. It will always be a certain section of the population, has always been, will always be a certain section, a a pretty broad section in in many cases, certainly for for, for the news programmes on Radio 4. But what we cannot do, and my advice... (laughs) the idea they let but anyway my advice would be don't it's not a race to the bottom don't engage in a race to the bottom don't look at social media and say ah this is the way you get 
the kids, because it's not. When I joined the, the, the program 33 years ago, they said, they were quite open about it, they said they'd given me the job because I was young. <laughs> Imagine that, being young. Um, and, and we had, we absolutely, the Radio 4, the April especially, had to appeal to younger people because they were... But you know what happens? Um, younger people get older. And then they die and other younger people come along and so on. And there is this kind of circle. And we still, I mean, when I joined the program, and I'd like to say this is entirely down to me, it may not have been entirely down to me, but when I joined the program there were four million listeners, <clears throat> we now have seven million. And the fact is that's because young people are not as thick as lots of us say they are. They're actually pretty bloody bright and a lot of them do listen to, the, to, to, to Radio 4, albeit on different media. That's fine. They haven't got to sit there with a wireless set in front of them, obviously, and they listen on the phone or whatever. But they will listen if we're offering them the right material and we've got to stay serious. That's the thing. Radio 4 is for serious listeners or it's, there's no point. That is... That is a wonderful moment, uh, a wonderful thought with which to end. I love it that you still say we have I know, to do this. I know. You know, you when got through that, that whole interview without ever even... ever going to stop? Without what even not mentioning Mastermind, which is... He wants to mention Mastermind no, because you... he wants you to know that he hasn't retired, well, okay? That's... He hasn't <clears throat> retired. You can meet him now and he'll sign a book for you. I think you're going to do that. I assume out at the front. It's not going to be happening here. I can't say any books here. Can I just say it has been the honour of my lifetime to sit next to you for the last 10 years. You're not a perfect person, you're not a perfect interviewer, uh, but you are one of the most extraordinary and dynamic people I've ever met and it's a real pleasure, John. And can I say, can I say, can I, can, can I say, that no. I agree with every word of that, except <laughs> except that it applies to him. He's no, no, absolutely doesn't. bloody That's it. brilliant. We're out of here. We're out of here. Thank you very much. Come on. Thank you very much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world. And whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – and we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. <laughs>